And I'm Kendi Easley, I'm your preacher this morning, and I'm the executive pastor here at Bethany, which means that I am involved in visiting the different locations and seeing how things are going. I work with the council specifically around strategic and long-term planning. I work with a teaching team on sermon series planning. We work with Green Lake on seasonal planning. Are you hearing a word over and over? planning. I do a lot of planning. If you're doing a lot of planning, you're in a room with a group of people trying to get motivated toward a goal, usually with a whiteboard, and these are called meetings. Now, many times I am in charge of these meetings, and so I don't have the luxury of like cheating and looking on my cell phone or checking out what's going on on my computer. I um, try to keep them from being boring and try to keep things moving in the right direction. Once in a while, I get to go to a meeting that I'm not responsible for. So this happened in a really memorable way a couple months ago. There was a group of about 20 people from Bethany, both staff and people from various locations, somebody from the Sing Band, who were all committing ourselves to going on the bike ride to raise funds for world relief. So this bike ride was a 400-mile bike ride across the state of Washington. So we're at this orientation and preparation meeting. And Jack Brace, who is the pastor at Northeast and also our missions pastor, was leading the meeting. And I, I was basically listening. You know, it's like, hey, it's a free meeting. I'm not in charge. <laughs> so Jack's sharing some information. And then he got to the part that's really interesting to all of us, the time where we get to answer, ask and get answered our own questions, right? That's when you really tune in. And sometimes it's been my experience that people will ask questions that were actually already answered, but they weren't listening, so they have a question. Well, I might have been one of those people because I sort of raised my hand and... Um, he, Jack was talking about that we were going to take some very serious preparations for this 400-mile bike ride. And someone had asked if we would be preparing together. And so Jack was answering that question that, in fact, there's this thing called Strava. If you're a cyclist, how many of you cyclists use Strava? Yeah, it's this thing that tracks your rides. And you can even compare, like, I did this ride at this speed compared to other people my age, my weight, I don't know, whatever, who did the ride a little faster, a little slower, whatever. So he's talking about this. He's like, yes, we'll do some rides together, and then we can follow each other on Strava. And, you know, when you're out doing a 20-mile, 30-mile, and all of you should for sure do a 60-mile, ride and he's saying this and I like interrupted him and I said or like a four or five mile ride and Jack was like yeah if you assess where you are and you need to start with a four or five mile ride Kendi <laughs> and I thought right immediately I am not going on Strava and telling them I went four or five miles this is <laughs> not what one does um, but Jack kind of emphasized that there was going to be a very significant preparation that I was going to need to do if I was currently riding about four miles and it was my goal to ride 400 miles in a short amount of time. This is what the book of Malachi is about. Not a cycle ride, but preparation. Malachi is speaking to the people of God, to Israel, about preparing for what is coming next. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. 
And so while we have been doing this summer series, we call them summer shorts, not because we're wearing shorts, but because the books are short. What I discovered is it's still a lot of material to cover. There's like four chapters, there are four chapters in Malachi, and they're significant because Malachi is known kind of as a, a Hebrew Socrates. He writes the whole book in this question and answer format. So we're going to ask ourselves three questions as we look at this book of Malachi. The first question is, what is God's assessment of Israel and then of us? Strategic planners call this the current state. Like, where are we today? What's the current state of thing? What's the assessment? And then what's God's vision? What's the ideal state? for Israel and for us. And then lastly, what's the gap between the current state and the ideal state? Like Kendi can ride four miles and Kendi is going to ride 400 miles, very large gap. So we're gonna look at how does God want to address that gap? Please pray with me. Mighty God, we thank you so much for your word that it comes to us in new and fresh ways. We thank you for the privilege of gathering here this morning as your people. And Lord, I ask that, that in this meeting, in this time really of preparation, that you would so shape us, that we would live our lives in accordance with your will, your plan, your word. Lord, I, I pray that we would move from being a half-hearted people to being a whole-hearted people, that we would be all in, in the gospel message, in our city and in our world and in our hearts. So come, Lord Jesus, use this time to your glory, we ask. Amen. So in the um, book of Revelation passage that Megan just read, we see that in Revelation, in the very end of the whole Bible, there's still this kind of critique that comes saying, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. So God is so concerned that we kind of look one way, but there's, there's something different happening inside. So let's look at what was God's assessment of Israel's current state. They maintained this outward form of religious correctness, but they were straying from God in their thinking and in their behavior. There was this sense of disillusionment at the time amongst the Jews. Several decades earlier in Haggai, which we had read a couple weeks ago and studied, there was urged the rebuilding of the temple, you might remember this, and called for sincere devotion to Yahweh. And the people sort of responded, well, we'll get around to building the temple when we feel like it. And God's like, no, now, I, I'm calling you now, and prophesied about future blessings and glory and the return of God's presence. But in Malachi's time, they were experiencing this economic difficulty. They were, their crops weren't growing well, there was opposition from neighboring people, and they were still under the rule of a superpower. They, there was no sign of God's glorious presence. So let's look at how Malachi starts. Chapter 1, verse 1, an oracle. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, which means messenger. I have loved you, says the Lord. Okay, have you heard someone say, I love you? It's a great moment, right? If, if you're in a dating relationship, there's kind of this sense of like, I don't want to say I love you until maybe the other person will say, I love you in return, right? 
You, you don't want to put yourself out there until you know maybe you're going to get a response. So the Lord says to Israel, I have loved you. And what does Israel say back? How have you loved us? I mean, come on. If you were in a relationship and you said, I love you, and the person said, like, show me, it's not exactly what you were hoping for, right? And that's how it is with God. God hears this from Israel, and he says, like, but, but you ask, how have you loved us? And this is God's assessment. It's, he's, it's like the very first thing he, he, he's measuring is disappointing. When you go to the doctor, you know, there's this initial assessment. Recently, I was out gardening, and I, I will have to, you can talk a little bit later in the sermon about bitterness. I will have to say I was resenting the chore I was doing. I was pulling these heavy hoses up, the, up a steep-ish slope, and I was thinking, why did my husband do this heavy hose thing for me? And I'm, I'm out here doing these heavy hoses. And I, like, yanked the hoses forward, and just as I yanked the hoses forward, I, like, walked into a twig. Not, not my eyelid, not like any protective, like into my eyeball. And I thought to myself, I went like, it's like, oh, this, is, this, this isn't really happening. I'm just going to pretend this isn't happening. I'll keep working with hoses. And then pretty soon, it's like, this really hurts. Like, this is no joke. I have a stick in my eyeball. It was very painful. So I ended up needing to go to the emergency room. And when I go into the emergency room, and I'm like, you know, tears are streaming, my eyes red, I've got a friend who drove me, and what's the first thing that they had me do? Get on the scale. It's like, what does it matter what I weigh? I've got a stick in my eye. Okay, this is how it starts, right? You, they have to assess the basics. What do I weigh? What was my blood pressure? What was my temperature? What was my, they put that little pulse thing on. It's like, just look in my eye already. Okay, this is an assessment. It's normal. It's what happens to see, to, so that you know what's the starting point. So this is what happens with God. He's beginning this assessment. And as soon as the response from Israel is, but you ask me, how did I love you? Then God's already on this pathway of like, this is not looking good for Israel. So we go to chapter 1, verse 6. God says this, A son honors his father, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? And God goes on to say, cursed is the cheat. He turns to the priests and he admonishes them. You know how you do this? You bring inferior sacrifices and then you lie about it. As the leaders go, so the people go. So God is very concerned that these priests are not only bringing inferior sacrifices, but then they're making it look like they were bringing the full sacrifice. In chapter 1, verse 14, when you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? He goes on to say, like, would you give this to your governor? Would you, would you say this is the, the, a real sacrifice when essentially you've taken the animals from your flock that were already going not doing well or were going to die, we're going to slow the whole group down, and you're calling them a sacrifice? So I live out on the east side, and in Seattle as well, you're allowed to have chickens, and I have some chickens. And let me tell you, when we have a lovely steak dinner or something on the grill, maybe even chicken, I do not take the best and biggest, most succulent piece and take it out and give it to my chickens. 
I give them the bones, like an old bone, maybe even from the dog, leftover. They even like to pick at chicken bones. It's kind of disgusting to feed your chickens chicken, but there you have it. God is saying this is what the priests are doing with him. They're not taking him the best. They're taking him the leftovers. It's like looking in your fridge and having guests over and, and, and saying, oh, there must be something here back in the bottom of the vegetable drawer. It's a little bit yellowed, but hey, we'll make it into something. And making it sound like it was the best you had. God is asking of the priests to give wholeheartedly, to, to give honestly what they're giving. And instead, they, they're not faithful in this. So God's assessment that they're half-hearted, that they've compromised, that they've even become complacent and cynical, and they're even acting with contempt for God. And then God goes on in chapter 2. Here's another thing. 2.13, the Lord is acting as witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you've broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. You're not being faithful in your marriage relationships. You're taking relationships too lightly. And even specifically, this midlife crisis thing that you're having where, you know, you who are newlyweds out there, it's so exciting. That first year, maybe it's hard for some, was for us. But, you know, we learned along the way. But you get a decade or two decades or three decades or five decades down the road in marriage. And what God is saying is be faithful. Like, yes, your eye is wandering. Stop it. Your heart is wandering. Stop it. You have to treat these relationships with honor. Don't mess around, literally. So you're not faithful in your marriage relationships. And then in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, which Megan read earlier, you've wearied the Lord with your words. It's like you're all talk. You're just going on and on. I love God. God is good. I'm bringing a sacrifice. And it's not the truth. You're, you're just saying it. You're, you're kind of in word only, not in deed. And then God says in chapter 3, 8, ever since the time of your ancestors, this is brutal, right? This is like unfair fighting in marriage, don't do this. Or it's like, hey, for 10 years, but this is what God says. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and you've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. Now, later in Matthew, Jesus is also concerned about this. So I was tempted, and now I'm ending up, this is like a little side note to the sermon. There was a difference between these sacrificial offerings and tithes. So the sacrificial offerings have now become the person of Jesus. Jesus has made this sacrifice. The perfect, blameless lamb of God has made the sacrifice. But the offerings are still to be made, the tithes. 
are still to be made. So when Jesus is talking about this, he confronts the teachers and the priests and the leaders in Matthew chapter 23, and in many Bibles, these are called the seven woes. He says to them, you wear the right clothing, like they had these things called phylacteries, they were like little prayer boxes, and the uh, priests wore great big ones, like so people would be proud of them, even with tassels, like look at me in my large prayer boxes because I pray large prayers. And Jesus said, you take the best place of honor at the banquet. You're really focused on cleaning the outside of the cup, but you're neglecting the inside. You bring 10% of your crops as a gift, but you neglect justice and mercy. And God says both are important. Bring the full tithe, bring the 10%, and bring your heart for justice and mercy. So then, back to Malachi, who says in chapter 3, 13, God says, you have said harsh things against me, says the Lord, and yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. That's like a brutal testimony. It's futile. Like, I believe, but it doesn't really make any difference. I serve God, but it, it, it doesn't really matter. It's futile. So we see God's assessment and his judgment, really, of Israel and of us. Don't we do some of these same things? Don't we focus on kind of what looks like following God? We, we maybe check a box. I was in worship. I went to Bible study. I was in a small group. I wasn't there with my whole heart. I was maybe multitasking, but, but I did it, which is good. But religiosity is just going through the same motions. In what ways are we just going through the motions Another way to understand God's assessment or God's judgment is that he really cares about our hearts. He's just not looking at the outside. He cares about what's going on within us, about whether we've really invited him into the inside. It's not a sort of a perfunctory check-in, like a college student calls their parent, hey, how are things? Good. Send money. Bye. <laughs> right? Or... A person calls their older parent. Hey, Dad, how are you doing? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you're thinking, I've heard this story before. How long, can I, how long do I need to stay on the phone, right? It's not that. It's an actual sit-down meal where God says, I want to know you. I want to be in relationship with you. It's not a check-in or a checkbox. So how has this happened for us? What's the assessment of us? Have we become complacent or cynical or half-hearted? Someone who's complacent has a feeling of sort of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievement. Like, I'm in an okay place. How about cynicism? Cynicism is a combination of thoughts and feelings. It, it's often a protection against hurt or disappointment or sadness or fear it's fueled by anger, and it has justifications, doesn't it? We, do, we say things to ourselves like this. I've been burned too many times to let myself get taken in again. The world is a hard place, and you just have to be tough to survive in it. Or I'm not cynical, I'm just experienced. Cynicism, cynicism carries this grain of truth, and it also carries with it old hurts, and wounds, and lots of doubt and fear, reasons not to trust. There are disappointments. There are things to be angry about. 
But do you nurse your anger? Do you nurse your disappointment? Are you susceptible to this kind of bitterness, even turning to contempt? Brain studies show that these kinds of uh, behaviors, this kind of dwelling, distracts the brain from actually problem solving and instead moves and rewires the brain to problem blaming. Like, oh, the problem is out there. It's happened to me. I, I don't have any relationship with it. And this increases our stress. It's really much harder to do the work of digging deep and saying, what is working? What is a step I could take in my organization, in my family, in my friendships, at my work, in our culture? How about us? Do we wear these lenses of complacency, of cynicism, even contempt? What about our relationships? Is there somebody at work that we think, oh, they'll never change? Or is there an old friend you hope won't call? How do we use our resources? Are we those kinds of folks who say there's never enough time and there's never enough money? What's God's assessment of us? Are we trying to make things look better than they really are? I'm reminded of somebody who recently told me that they went off Instagram because they realized that they were thinking about getting engaged, serious commitment, because they would get so many likes on Instagram. Not good. We're, we're thinking about how things look instead of how they really are. So Malachi is going now from this assessment to preparing Israel for the future that is to come. What is this future? What's God's vision for the future? If this is God's assessment, what's his vision? God has great plans for us, for Israel, for wholehearted and hopeful living. In all the areas on which God passes judgment, he also has a promise and a vision of how it could be. It's woven throughout each chapter of Malachi. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. He says, you will see it with your own eye, and you will say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So you have contempt and doubt and fear about God's goodness. You're going to see it with your own eyes. In the New Testament, it's Thomas who says to Jesus, when Jesus appears in his resurrection body, and, and Jesus says, here I am. And Thomas says, I won't believe it until I touch your hands and your side, and then I'll believe it. That's what God is saying to Israel. You're going to see it. You're going to experience it. And then he says in 111, my name will be great among the nations. In chapter 2.5, there will be a covenant of life and peace. Isn't that what we want? Life and peace. And then in chapter 3.10, he says this, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Many times in scripture, it says, don't put God to the test. This is one of the few times where God says, test me. Bring the whole tithe in. Put me to the test. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. Do you want to see the floodgates of heaven thrown open? And, and I will pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Don't we want that kind of life that's so filled up? It's so abundant. It's to overflowing. 
And then in chapter 4, 2, for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves from the stall. We're going to be like leaping and dancing and praising God. That's wholeheartedness. And then this is how he closes in chapter 4, verse 6. He, God, will turn the heart of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. It's like intimate relationships. So relationships are not to be treated lightly, not in marriage and not in other relationships. Parents and children are to be restored. Most important relationship with God is to be respectful, God-honoring. This is God's vision. God treasures his people. And our resources are, are not to be deceptive, like look like we're honoring God, but to actually honor God and see how God pours out blessing. So this is God's vision for what could be. And this brings us to the third point. What about the gap? There is a gap. What do we do about this gap between what God's assessment is Kendi can only ride four miles on her bike. And what God's vision is, let's go 400 miles across the state. How are we going to close this gap? So here's the amazing news. We actually can't close the gap, but God can. If you go on the subway in London, there are often these signs that say, mind the gap. Because at the subway, if you're waiting for your subway train, and then you go to step on the subway train, there is a gap into which one does not want to fall. It's disastrous, right? Damaging to you, damaging to everybody, slows up the whole subway. It's a big problem. So you want to be aware of this gap. And in a way, that represents our Christian life. We want to be aware that there's this gap between where we are and where God longs for us to be. And that we actually, it's more like a chasm. Like we actually can't cross over that gap on our own. It's not just one big step for humankind. It's, it's a too big a step. In, and I picture it like this. I haven't actually experienced this, but I know there's got to be some way if you're getting on the subway in London that if you're in a wheelchair, some kind of a, like a little platform comes out so you can roll onto the subway. It has to happen. I don't know how it happens, but let's imagine that it does. That's what God does for us. He, he provides this bridge so that while we're aware that there's a gap, we get to get on board. We get to move into God's desired future for us. We're aware of the gap, but we're not going to get caught in or stuck in the gap. I have a friend who was recently diagnosed with cancer, and when he got this diagnosis, it wasn't just like, hey, you have a little cancer. It was like, you have cancer. That backache that you thought was a backache and you were trying to get treated in every other way, it's metastasized cancer. It's in your back, it's in your brain, it's in all these different places. So he's learning to live with this and, and what treatment is available to him. And it's one of those times where he's sort of told, like, you've only got so long to live. And he's dealing with a lot of anxiety. He's been getting that under control. And he called me the other day and said, I said, how are you doing? How are you sleeping and such? And he said, I woke up in the middle of the night the other night and I was so angry. And it's like, well, tell me about that. I was so angry at the CEO of my company who hasn't called me. He's been working for this company for a couple decades. And, and the sense of being like dishonored, not noticed, nobody cares. Here I'm suffering and nobody's reaching out to me. 
He just couldn't, couldn't let it go. He was dwelling on it, and he was getting himself all agitated about it. And he remembered that he had a friend in AA who usually was able to calm him down. So he already had a pathway that God seemed to have provided where he had a sponsor at AA that as soon, it was, as, soon as it was time in the morning that it was okay to call another person, not the middle of the night, he called him and said, you know, I'm getting so angry. And his sponsor said, remember, pause when agitated. It's one of his sayings. Like, just pause. Take a breath. Take stock of where you're at. Don't let this anger overtake you and, agitated and agitate you. So pause. And then remember, what are you about? And he said, you know what you're about? You're about trusting God. Like, do you trust God even in this circumstance? That's the depth of the matter. You can get in this little bitterness spiral, or you can say, even in this, I am trusting God. And then the next one, clean house. Like, take care of your side of the street is the way they say it. AA is kind of an amazing, like, spiritual direction, if you will. He says, take care of your side of the street. Don't be thinking about what the CEO hasn't done. What's happening in you? Where are you at? What's God doing in you? I was so reminded of Jesus' words when I had this eye injury about don't worry about the twig in someone else's eye. Take the plank out of your own eye, right? Deal with what's going on in your own heart. Stop pointing fingers and then help others. Get out of yourself and help someone else. So how do we tackle this complacency that can become boredom or even a contempt for God. Like, why are all these things happening to me? We, we get on this kind of uh, bitterness train. How do we get off that? You know, one of the ways is we have to say we need help. So back to the bike ride. It turns out that although I dedicated myself to uh, bike riding a lot of miles, uh, once we were on the ride, and I don't think I mentioned to you all that the 20 people from Bethany and all the others combined, I think there were 40-something riders, raised $125,000. Did I tell you this yet? Okay, $125,000 were raised by these folks who are going to ride their bikes across the state. And then the U.S. government supports this ministry to refugees, resettling refugees, to such an extent that it's a two-for-one match. So the $125,000 two times over becomes $375,000 that these people raised for refugees. So it's totally phenomenal. I loved being on the ride. Um, truth be told, um, my husband and I were not able to ride every mile on our tandem. And some of you might be thinking, well, she was on a tandem. Like, her husband's a good cyclist. Like, why didn't he just pull her along? Well, it turns out the... Uh, ergonomics and technology of a tandem are such that you actually are pedaling together. So even if he could have pedaled a lot faster, my little legs still have to go around. It's one chain. And this one chain, we actually bumped into some problems because when we were under load, which the two of us are not small people, combined weight, we could not get into our smallest gear. So if a slope was like above about 5% grade, I learned about these things, uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't manage it. So on about day three, we'd already been through the city, we'd been through the suburbs, we'd been through the farmland, we'd been through Enumclaw, we'd been up the side of Mount Rainier, we'd been down the side of Mount Rainier. We were biking through 
cherry orchards when the Rainier cherries were just laden on the trees, like so amazing. And then we're biking through some vineyards. And so the vineyards, and then lastly, it was going to be the Palouse and all that hay and wheat and things. So we're in the area of the vineyards. And I'm noticing that in my mind, there's a scripture about the vineyards, right? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And I was observing these vines that weren't a vine. Like I picture a vine. Sometimes a branch comes out to one side. Sometimes it comes out to both sides. Jesus is the vine. You are the branches. Well, these vines, there'll be like six vines coming up out of the ground. Like my scriptures are all thrown off. They're not six vines. If there's six vines, how are the, which is the branches? I mean, it's just a mess to me. I was very concerned. So uh, as we're riding along, um, we got to this slope that was a little bit too slopey. And my husband, Tyler, said, we need to get off the tandem. We've got to walk up this slope, up this blacktop. It's like 100 degrees. Like, okay, we'll get off. We'll walk up the hill. So we're off the bike. We're walking up the hill. I'm thinking about these vines. And Tyler says, I am going to pray to Jesus that there is a truck that comes along and he just stops and asks us if, and if we would like a ride and he's going to have an open flatbed in the back of his truck because our tandem is gigantic and it's going to have to lay on this. So we needed a truck that was going to be empty, lay the bike on the flatbed. And we're walking along, you know, do you want water? Yes. Blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, I'm going to pray to Jesus that the truck who comes along is going to be somebody who knows about grapevines because I'm really confused about this whole <laughs> vine in the branches thing that we're seeing here in Washington. And these really look like grapevines, but they don't fit the scriptures. This is a problem. We're walking up the hill. We're kind of, you know, laughing about how we're both praying to Jesus about this truck. And then you know what happens? A truck, a white truck stops like right at like the foot of where the hill got super steep, like a beautiful time to stop. And he stops and this kind of, I'll call him a buff dude, like this guy gets out and he calls to us, kind of from here to the back of the sanctuary, do you guys need help? And we're like, yes, <laughs> we need help. We go, we're like running now up to the guy. And he says, you know, would you like me to, would you like a ride? And we're like, yes, we would like a ride. We needed a ride about five miles from where we were to the next snack area, which this is like worship, like you get refueled and then you go out and go again. So we just needed to get up these hills to the snack area and then we'll start again. He says, it's no problem. I'll put your, and then he like heave hoed. I think he did it by himself. He heave hoed our bike on the back of the truck. And I'm thinking, okay, Tyler's prayers are answered. We've got a guy, empty flatbed. We get in the truck, which meant I was in the front seat, which meant to me that my husband didn't want to talk. Like he's kind of finished talking. We've been on the tandem for three days, a lot of words. And he's, <laughs> he's ready for me to chat up the guy in the front seat of the cab. So I'm chatting up the guy. And I'm like internally thinking, well, do I ask anything about the vines? You know, we've already got the truck. It's a beautiful white truck. And so then I'm thinking, you know, why not? Let's just, I'll just ask the guy. I said, so I don't know if you might happen to know anything about these vines that were passing by, but they look like grapevines, but they don't, like there's six of them coming up. And he said, yes, that's uh, in Washington. It's one of the few places where we have these vines that grow up. It's like six of them together. And then he went into a whole thing about it. And I said, hmm, you seem to know a lot about uh, vines. And he said, yes, I'm a vintner. Like, are you kidding me? 
God sent us exactly the person that we needed. Empty truck, and he actually was concerned both about us and about all his workers. He said there's like a lot of fast trucks that are driving on this road, and you guys walking alongside of the road, it's not a good idea. So God answered our need. He filled in the gap. And that's what Malachi is telling us God desires to do. As Malachi concludes, so does the entire Old Testament. And it leaves us in anticipation of what's to come. We don't close the gap. God does. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger you desire will come says the Lord Almighty. He's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send his very son to fill in this gap. And when you turn the page from Malachi to the New Testament, it starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And then we get to chapter 3 of Matthew, and it's John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? His message is, repent, be baptized. I come to prepare the way of the Lord. And that's what Malachi is doing for us in this chapter, I mean, in this book. He's saying, I'm preparing what God's going to do next. And he invites us to prepare our hearts. So as we come here to the table, we're going to receive really what God did to fill in the gap. And the way we receive it is a little bit like cleaning house. The church over all time created something called confession, where, where we admit to God that there's a gap in our lives, that there are places where we fall short, where we hold on to bitterness, where we become the judge and jury of other people. And God wants us to, to relinquish that, to, to confess it, to repent of that kind of repeated choice of bitterness, and to let God uh, forgive us, and let God in to restore us and reclaim us and redeem us. So I'm going to invite us to a prayer of confession as we come to the table today. It's going to go up on the screen, and essentially I'm going to kind of pray the hard parts, and you guys are all together going to say, forgive us, Lord. Is that going to work for us? And then at the end, I'm going to leave a quiet space, and I'm going to invite you to fill in those, those things that you personally want to add to this confession. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask your forgiveness for all the hard things we have said to one another. Forgive us, God. Okay, you got it? The all part is you guys, okay. For all the things we should have said but didn't. Forgive us, God. For ignoring the lonely. For changing ourselves just to be popular. For going along with the crowd. For listening to those who didn't have our best interests at heart. For asking you for worthless things. For wanting what we don't need. For taking what we don't really want. For taking for granted all the good gifts you give us. For believing we are alone. And our God, we ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we hold on to bitterness or contempt, 
believing that you couldn't possibly transform this particular person or situation. God, we ask your forgiveness for the way that we treat relationships lightly, valuing ourselves so far above others. And God, we ask your forgiveness for the way we squander our resources of time and money on lesser things. And so, our God, we thank you that when we come to this table, we receive not only your forgiveness, but your absolute love and power, that with you all things are possible. So come, Lord Jesus, meet us here, we ask. Amen. So it was the night that he was arrested and betrayed that Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he said, this is my body, broken for you. This is the perfect sacrifice. You don't, you don't have to make a sacrifice anymore. You just have to receive this one. And then he said, and this is the cup shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. This is the cup of the new covenant. It's a new deal between us and God. Whenever you drink this cup and eat this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death, life, resurrection until he comes again. As you receive today, you can receive the um, bread. It will come down the rows, and you can take that in your own timing. And then as the cup comes, we ask that you'd hold that, that we could receive that together. And if you need gluten-free bread, I'll be walking around. Just give me a, a, a hand wave. Would the ushers please come forward? This is the feast of God for the people of God. Receive. Receive.